the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. The drives one. We're back. It's the FSS Plus podcast, Future Stars Series, futurestarseries.com. I'm Jason Churchill. Joe Doyle joins me. Uh, the College World Series is coming. And the reason I know that is because when I turn on the television and I get on the social medias, Mr. Doyle, conference tournaments, regionals, super regionals, that is the buzz in amateur baseball now. And we are 45 days away from the 2023 MLB draft. That makes me smile. I know that's good. I know that makes you smile, Joe, when you think about that. Those are really, really fun uh three days. Uh before we get into what we're gonna do on on today's show, what what's your favorite part of the draft? Is it seeing the kids that are there in person get to go up and kind of experience that with friends and family? Is it all the ridiculous comps thrown out there by the by the league's no, network? It's not that. <laughs> Because that might be my favorite because it's just so ridiculous. You know, it's it's just so um, so predictable. You know exactly what names are going to throw out there before the player actually gets picked. But uh, but what's your favorite part of, of the draft? Day one, day two, day three, all of it, big picture, uh, something a little bit more uh, uh, under the magnifying glass that, that, that you like to experience, that you like to watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to Harold Reynolds comparing Braden Taylor to Lou Gehrig. Should be a good day in Seattle. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Always good. It's enough when, when, when our boy Jeremy Booth compares Dylan Cruz to Mike Trout. It's just, it's just the loftiest of expectations. Like I understand it, but it is, but you know, and, and this is a good opportunity by the way, to, uh, to share a little bit, like you, you talk to scouts, uh, you know, I talk to scouts, the, the traditional scouting community, and I don't mean the analysts that are, are doing it with data and I don't mean player development folks. I mean, people that are out there scouting kids in high school, college, and at the pro level, when when they create it, when they come up with a comp, the comp is like high level. It's not what's the most likely end result. It's if everything works out for this guy, what is he? So to be honest with you, I, I get the Mike Trout thing. I think, oh, I think yeah, you, too. That no, you, you do I'm too. not saying it's wrong. I'm it's, not saying it's wrong. I just mean philosophically in principle, comparing <laughs> someone to one of the top five outfielders in 150 years of baseball mm -hmm. as a practice is just tough for the kid. And the other part of it, Jason, as you know, is people compare players differently. You know, like I remember when this is the second week in a row, this kid's name is going to come up and it's the most random kid. I remember when Anthony Solomedo got drafted yep. in 2021 and everyone was like, this kid is going to be Madison Bumgarner. Mm -hmm. And that was because of the operation, the way his body moved, like the pitches are not the same. Right. Um, so some people go with, how is this kid going to produce from a production standpoint? Some mm -hmm. people say they, they comp based on the body. Some people uh, comp based on the the operation, the way the player moves, like Kyle Teal and Kyle Seeger. I've mm -hmm. comped those two in terms of like offensive production and the swing. But I just think comps in general are a really fun exercise. But more often than not, they're 
they're purposeless, right? It's just fun. Um, it's almost like a mock draft. It is it's, like it's a almost, mock almost draft. like mock draft. Yeah. You are down. You're you're gonna be wrong. <laughs> yeah, had and fun when, doing it. And when comps first became like a thing, it was mostly for the draft. I mean, they would you know teams have have done this for you know hundred like you said 150 years uh, of Major League Baseball. You know, teams have done the whole comp thing. Oh, it kind of reminds me of this guy. But the idea when we're talking about draft prospects and we're talking about 20 year old kids in a ball is to give like the original idea was for scouts to give their bosses, the, the manager, their supervisor, the scouting director, the general manager, the president of baseball operations, an idea of what the player could be. Like if things go right on the high side, like do we have the player development power in 2023 to take Dylan Cruz and make him Mike Trout or make him something relatively close to Mike Trout because he has all the tools to do that. That's essentially what the comp is. But yeah, you're right. Like modern day comping has turned into kind of like an internet, you know, sensation in a way, a social media sensation. It's like, like when I throw a, a player on someone, I'm thinking about the role that the player makes. Like, like people ask me about Jared Kelnick drafted by the Mets, uh, traded to Seattle. Like the comp I threw on him confused everybody because the comp I threw on him was Matt Holiday. You know, average yeah. to above average uh, corner outfielder, uh, hit 30 plus homers, hit 290, hit 300. Obviously, Matt Holiday's numbers were blown up a little bit in Colorado, hit somewhere in the middle of the order. Like that was the the comp. I, and people are like, wait a second, like Matt Holiday really never has played center field. And I was like, well, Jared Kelnick's probably not going to play center field regularly either. And like, but wait a second, Matt Holiday's right handed and Jared Kelnick's left handed. So. Like I just say so all people are confused at comps. And I think when you throw comps out there, sometimes you'll have to answer for it. So you almost have to write a whole book on it. Yeah. You throw and the it. casual fan wants to see it too. I mean, Matt Holiday had one of the most unique swings mm. of his of his generation. It's such an early follow through and he was very unique. People people want to see the comp. You know, they want to watch video and go, oh, yeah, I see that. Okay. Right. It's like a style um, comp, the body comp. It's a style comp. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, you know, anyways. There, uh, were, my there were Mariner fans, that. Joe, that were disappointed that I said, but wait a second, that's it? And I'm like, do you realize that Matt Holiday was a four to seven win player for like 10 years straight? Like, that's an amazing player. I mean, like, don't be disappointed. He's a Hall of Famer. Like, right. Yep. yep. <laughs> Sometimes, like, geez. Anyways. Um. Answer your question. My favorite part of the draft is rounds two through 10. I think it is, it's a, it's a big answer because there's like 300 picks that take place there. But I think those are the players that for me, I, I've like been diving in on over the course of the calendar year. I like when the money gets moved around and there's creativity that has to take place. I like there's more high school players taken in that in that uh, region of the draft. Mm -hmm. I just think there's a lot more storylines, intricacies, nuance to day two, and I I really enjoy covering that part. Yeah, and I think the way player development has developed, um, to use a strange uh, set of terms, uh, you can draft a kid in round five, and if you just like one or two of his traits there are lots of ways to turn that guy into an everyday player that you're going to look back on and say, why didn't he go in round one? Like how many times have we seen that? Um, just about every draft. And I think it happens even more uh, than it did. Now people will bring up, yeah, Mike Piazza was a 62nd round pick and Albert Pools was what a 12th round pick. Those are one-offs. It happens regularly that guys in the top 50 are outperformed, outward, outcareered by guys 
drafted between 51 and 500. It happens every mm-hmm. year far more than it ever did did before. And that's because players are taking better control of their own careers, their own development, and teams are putting more energy into it. Uh, and we have more information and teams are making fewer mistakes uh, in the draft, which is a lot of fun. So rounds two yeah. through 10, I would have to agree. I, I do think that's probably my favorite time. The picks start to go a little quicker. Um, you get to kind of look around. One of the things we're going to do uh, during the draft and certainly after the draft, it's just kind of take snapshots of, you know, for example, uh, you know, after the Orioles make their first, you know, their first day's picks and what did that do to their top 10 and just have conversations about that. And then once the entire draft is over, you and I will spend some time going through all 30 teams and, uh, and we'll get you to update your, your top 10s. We won't go 30 deep for 30 teams again, We'll get you to update your top tens based on the draft classes. So I love thinking about it from that standpoint as well. It's a lot of fun. Uh, yes, sir. You know, and I'll, I'll add one other piece. If you go and if you look at the best farm systems in baseball and the best teams in baseball, uh, like the Braves, like the mm-hmm. Orioles, like to a lesser extent, the Blue Jays, a lot of their success right now is coming from the second, third, fourth, and fifth rounders. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily the big bonus guys. So uh, it's a critical part of the draft. Yeah, which doesn't necessarily mean they drafted poorly in that first round. Sometimes you want to take a bigger shot, which means a little bit bigger risk. Sometimes that's the way it works out. Uh, all right, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, I want to do some some ceiling floor with uh, with five uh, five players in particular that are mostly top 25 to 50 guys. Some of these guys are going to go in the top 10 to 20. Some are going to go between 20 and 50. Uh, some are round two, some are round one. Uh, but I have five names here. I want to. I want you to give me your take on what's the high range for them as we sit here, forty-five days out, and what's probably the floor for them. Now, when we talk about the floor in the draft, it's basically what we're saying is this is the highest point that we feel he can. He's he's going to get taken, and here's the lowest point. And signability becomes an issue here. If you p- pick any player that's supposed to go in the top twenty, if all of a sudden you get done with the first round and you get into the second round and you get beyond some of the teams that have extra picks and extra money. Now all of a sudden signability for that player becomes an issue. So he could fall and fade. And we've seen first round talents fall completely out of the top 10 rounds because now they're not signable anymore, but we're going to ignore that um, at this point. So we're going to pretend that's not part of this particular process. So we'll have five players. They're all hitters. And maybe next week we'll do, uh, we'll do pitchers. And then I want to talk about, I have a particular, um, I mean, I think about call-ups a lot, Joe. I look around the minor leagues as I watch games, as I go to games, as I, I follow what's going on in, in farm systems around Major League Baseball. And then I look at the big club and go, wait a second, why is this particular club not calling up this particular prospect when this prospect is as far as he can go in the minors? He's at double A and triple A doesn't make any sense for arms if you're sending him to the PCL or he's already in triple A and he's a hitter. And he's raking, and now we're two months in, and you have a huge weakness at third base, and you have a chance to hang on to contention. Why isn't this player up? I think about that a lot. So I have a player or two, probably just going to stick to one, and I knew you have a couple that you think should be getting strong consideration or just flat out be called up right now uh, by the big club. So we'll finish out the uh, the show with uh, with that. The MLB draft, as you said, 45 days out. Boy, it, do you remember the days when it was like on June 5th? Because while I like I that, those days. I, I did too. <laughs> I, I like that. I, I do like what they're doing with the draft. Now, I imagine you do too. 
mm-hmm. where you're having the all-star, you're having all-star weekend, futures game, home run derby, all-star game, and it's right around drafts. It's right around the draft. You get the draft on 9th, 10th, 11th. Um, futures game, I think, is on the 8th, I think, this year. Um, so it just gives you a bunch of days in a row where Major League Baseball is at the center of attention. And I finally start to think, now Major League Baseball is starting to get it. Uh, so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but we still have 45 days to go. But we are getting close. We're getting really close to where clubs are. At this point, clubs are having meetings in their draft room. Uh, they're doing Zoom calls. They're watching video. Like They're bored. They're moving magnets around on their board like absolute crazy right now. Uh, that's the point we're at. So uh, let's start. Uh, let's start out west here with uh, with Chase Davis, who uh, the outfielder, Arizona, left-handed bat. Um, you know, we've heard Carlos Gonzalez comps. I've seen Curtis Granderson comps. Very athletic, uh, has pop, uh, has had a really big second half of the uh, uh, of the season for the University of Arizona. Uh, what's about the high range, the highest range at this point, 45 days out, you could see Chase Davis going. And then where's the floor for Chase Davis? I think it kind of depends on who buys the athlete. It wouldn't surprise me if he went like, I think seven is the ceiling for me to the Reds. Uh, Here's the thing with Chase, man. He checks every single box. You look for red flags, Mm -hmm. especially in the top 10. Like you look for reasons why these guys are going to succeed and why they're going to be productive big leaguers. But then you also, with your peripherals, look at, okay, where could he be exposed? Chase, he's making a ton of contact. He's not, ironically, chasing out of the zone. He's hitting the ball hard as hell. I think, uh, like, philosophically, if you look at him as a left fielder, you know, maybe that doesn't fit in the top 10. I think he's got the arm for right field. But, yeah, like, I I look at a team like the Reds, I, I think he could go as high as seven. Um, you know, not a lot of people are talking about him inside of the industry. So that kind of worries me a little bit. Um, I would think the floor might be like 36 to the Dodgers. Like he seems like a Dodgers type of analytic pick. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would kind of be my range. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, it, 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 that's a good question. I think this is when modeling, you know, comes into play. Each team kind of has the way that the way they like to value players, high school players, Versus college players, is he a redshirt sophomore? Is he an old junior? Is it an older high school player that's 19 already? You're going to be 19 in August. Is it a relatively young player who's 17 and won't be 18 till September? Like all those things come into play. Like how athletic is he? Um, you know, some teams value that more uh, more than others. And the same thing goes for pitching. There's certain traits, certain things with age and experience and competition. I guess that's the thing with Chase Davis. You look at the numbers, they're very, very impressive. And I'm not saying they've, pay, they've played a poor schedule. But when you're thinking about him going seven, I think you're probably right. That's probably high-end range. Now, now, when you say seven, by the way, are you thinking if he goes seven, it's probably under slot? Or are you thinking if he goes seven, like he could probably still get full slot, that that's probably the high-end for him there? I, I don't know, man. I mean, like, I think Chase Davis and his his advisor, his agent, his representation, whatever you want to say, I think that he could probably make the case that I've got buyers at nine. I've got buyers at 11. I've got buyers at 12. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, may, maybe you can shave three, four, five hundred thousand off of it, but it's about the range where he could make the case that he fits with all of the other guys. So, if it is underslot, I don't think it's going to be a massive underpay. Right. 
Yeah, we're talking about a kid who, like, look, I, I understand that uh, that the SEC is the SEC and it, and then it's everybody else, and then the ACC is second. But you come out west of the Pac-12, and you get a guy who's hitting, I think, entering the weekend. He's hitting 367 with 20 bombs uh, and, and 40 walks and 39 strikeouts and about 200 and, 250 plate appearances. It looks like uh, almost 260 plate appearances. Um, maybe you're worried a tad bit about the swing and miss, but in two consecutive seasons, he's put up pretty big power numbers, and this year he's added the hit tool. So there's really not a lot to doubt. We know about the athleticism. I know he's in still a lot of bases, but he can run and do some things. Probably fits pretty pretty well athletically in left to right field. I would be really surprised unless it was about money if he wasn't a top 20 pick. I would be a little Me bit too. surprised. I, I think sometimes there's a pick that happens at, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, or somewhere in the top 10 that kind of throws the rest of the draft off a little bit. But I think it'd be surprised if he wasn't a top 20 pick. I'd be absolutely floored if he fell out of the first round and fell to the Dodgers at 36. But you're right. Weird yeah. things happen. Teams like to do strange things with their, with their, uh, with their bonus pool. And, you know, we talked before, before the show, we brought up Hunter Dozier who belonged nowhere near where he was drafted that year, at least based on talent from everything that, that we could gather. Um, that kind of came out of nowhere and threw off the rest of that draft. So uh, things do happen that can make it weird. I'll, so I'll add one other things. thing, man. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of scouts will use this phrase. Dudes have been dudes for a long time. Yeah. Dylan Cruz has been a dude yeah. since 2020. Mm-hmm. I would argue Chase Davis is in the top two, three, four names from the 2020 draft as the biggest, we'll call it a cap casualty because they turned it into a five-round draft. Right. A lot of teams would have been in line to buy Chase Davis in that draft had they had more money to play with. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, first round talent, top 50 talent in 2020, much like Dylan Cruz, he has not skipped a beat since arriving to campus. He didn't actually play that much as a freshman. They kind of just let him season and gain experience. And he's just been a baller the last two years. So when you go back and, and look at the last four years of baseball under chase davis at some point you just have to say this kid's the real deal like throw throw money at him let's go 38 home runs and 29 doubles and three triples so we're looking at 32 plus we're looking at 70 extra base hits in 115 games the last two years you're right he only had 30 at bats in 2021 his freshman year so He's uh he's performed. He's performed very, very well and obviously having a big year. So somewhere between seven and thirty-six, what we're looking at for uh for Davis. And you know, it's not really uncommon for players to have a range that large. Some players are gonna be even larger than that. And one of them mm-hmm. might be the next guy I want to talk about, and that's Yo Yo Morales. Uh Yohandi Morales, the Miami third baseman with six four, two twenty-five, uh pretty darn athletic. Uh we know the power is big. Um uh you know, he's had a little bit of a, a kind of a strange year when you look at uh, some of the uh, some of the trends. Very when you strange. look at his game logs, you know, it's kind of where there was a period where he was just striking out, you know, far too much. There was a period when um, uh, when it was like power, 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 power. And then there was a period when he was going three for three, three singles. Like it, it's been a, a pretty strange um, season. But overall, it's been a good year. He's 13 home runs. He had 18 bombs last year. The strikeouts might be a little high, and this is probably why we're not talking about Morales being, you know, a little bit like Chase Davis, where he has a chance to go top ten or fifteen. We're probably talking about somewhere. What's the high end on on Morales? Somewhere in the 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 high teens or or, or low twenties? Yeah, let me um, 
qualify this really quick. I don't want to, you know, do a full scouting report on all these guys, but over on my podcast this week, I talked about the six third baseman, the six college third baseman in this class. And Yo-Yo is the most athletic. He's got the best arm. He might have the most raw power. It's a huge bat speed. He's hitting like 400 this year. So Mm -hmm. you see all that and you're like, he makes it work. I mean, they're swing and miss, but he makes it work. Kid is running a 480 BABIP. Mm -hmm. 480, which is 160 points higher (laughs) than the college average. So I think there's going to be teams that see that and go, Okay, he's probably probably more like a 350, 360 hitter. Mm-hmm. But anyways, tons of chase. It's a full grade difference if you're throwing a hit tool on it based it's on average. It's massive. I mean, I think if you're being fair to this kid on the high side, it's a 50 plus hit tool. Mm-hmm. May I mean on the on a good day with development, it's above average. I think the high is probably 15 to the White Sox. I know they really liked him in high school. And so I, I I wouldn't say he's done anything to necessarily dissuade any team off of his profile, mm. but there's a lot of swing and miss here. And the breaking ball low and away is something that a team is going to have to have a track record of being able to clean up or he's going to turn into, I think I compared him to uh, a Eugenio Suarez. He's way more mm. athletic than Suarez, but in terms right. of production, like on the high end, this maybe is a 240 hitter that hits 30 bombs a year. So I think 15, with a maybe a plus defender, I do think Yo-Yo Morales could tumble to like 50 or 51 if teams just don't believe he's going to be able to hit. Now, I think you would agree. He's. I think he falls somewhere in the middle there because the athlete at 6'4 with the bat speed is probably just too enticing to fall that far. But I'm interested to hear where you value a player of that ilk. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I think this is probably because this probably for me anyway isn't a top twenty guy. Uh, it's probably somewhere starting at twenty twenty one, twenty two for me. Uh, just in general terms, uh, not not pretending I know what's going to happen the first you know fifteen, eighteen, twenty picks, um, which could change everything. Uh, I, I'd look around and I, I would think like if I'm like if I like for example if I'm Seattle at twenty two, do I consider Morales there? Probably not. I probably don't at at, at twenty two. Um, depending on who else is there. If every guy I really liked is gone and I think I can get Morales and save 300 grand at 22, then maybe I do it. But I look around my organization and I say, what, what's, what's my weakness? What's my strength in terms of what I have and what my organization develops well? And, and I probably make a decision based off that because I think at that point in the draft is where, I'm not saying is where you draft for need, but if you specifically aren't lacking that player, and there are other players that are really close or equal to uh, a Yo-Yo Morales. I probably go in the other direction. I probably go, you know, you know, prep shortstop or prep arm or athletic, you know, outfielder that might be able to stick in center. Something that I don't have that grades pretty evenly to Yo-Yo Morales. Now, you throw questions out there, Joe. Like, uh, all right, all things are equal, and you're like, I threw this out to to a bunch of scouts a couple of weeks ago. And I knew what they were going to say, but I wanted to see which way they they termed it, which way they phrased it. I was like, "All right, you're you're picking two. Dylan Cruz is off the board. You're the Washington Nationals. You're like, forget your trends, forget your history. Let's pretend you are the scouting director. You are the general manager. You are the guy making the decision here. And you have Paul Skeens and you have Wyatt Langford, both graded 
evenly. Everything is even here. And all of them to a man said, they'll never be even. They'll never be exactly even. But at 22, Joe, you could have something like that. You could have it where we're like, we're not really 100% sure Morales is better than, you know, Braden Taylor, who, who's a player we're going to talk about here in a couple of minutes, or, um, or, or Lombard, or somebody like that. So I, I think I'd look around in my organization. If I was Seattle at 22, that's the team I'm, I'm closest to. I think that's the team you're probably closest to, even though you cover everything. Like you look around and you see a Eugenio Suarez at the big league level, uh, oddly, the comp, and you see Ty Locklear at the minor league level. And if it's a high strikeout guy, eh, that's not necessarily what this team is missing. Now, if he's clearly the best player, you just take him, right? At the end of the day, if he's clearly the best guy, you just take him and run with it. But I don't think at 22... It's really ever that clear. I, I think there's there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of shadows at 22, so to speak, at 20, at 18, at 16, at 15 in some drafts, where you can yeah. just take the player that makes the most sense for your organization, and it not necessarily be the best player on the board because sometimes it's just so close, and you have to use tiebreakers. And I think that's what would happen with uh, with Morales if it's me. I think he's more of a of a second round guy, to be honest with you. I think that's a guy I'd pop in round two really, really early. And hope that I can just get more contact out of him. You mentioned the strikeout woes, 156 strikeouts and 736 career college plate appearances. That does include 49 in uh, in about 235 plate appearances as a freshman, but 107 in 480 plate appearances the last two years, still a little high for college. So he's probably always going to be uh, a relatively high strikeout guy. And you just want to make sure you get 35 homers out of him so he can play every day. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, I look at the, I look at the Marlins farm system. I mean, they pick at 35 and they pick at 47 and he's got South beach ties. He grew up there. I, I mean, Miami has not been shy about bringing local products back into their market. Yeah. Um, so I, I, and they, frankly, they need a third base prospect. They don't have anything. Jacob Berry's not a third baseman. Right. So uh, I think they make a lot of sense if he's there at 35, but I think I think I'm with you, man. I think um, you know 32 to 50 is probably where he ends up. Yeah, what's interesting, like like I pull open, and if you're if you're listening uh, and you're interested where some of these guys are actually ranked, um, Mr. Doyle earlier this month, I believe on May 2nd, you put out a a fresh 500, which I'm sure would look different if you did it now. Lots of player movement. Um, but if you go in and you you, you want to see where Morales is ranked, you had him 32. The conversation we just had reflects where you had him and vice versa. Uh, yeah, it's been almost a month, three three weeks, almost to the day. Um, we, we started off with Chase Davis, so you had it 21 with arrows pointing up. So uh, so that seems like that still rings true, although uh, maybe he gets into your top 15 next time uh, your, uh, your draft board comes out. Um, so there we go. Uh, Colton Ledbetter. Now, this is a little bit of a different conversation um, than it is with with Davis and uh, and Morales because we're talking about, first of all, entirely different players. Uh, he was at, what, was it Samford before he moved to Mississippi State? Tell us about Colton Ledbetter, Ledbetter and give us, a, uh, uh, give us the high and the low on Ledbetter. You have him ranked 39. Uh, mm -hmm. top 500 earlier this month. This is appropriate. I, I spent 20 minutes on this kid on my podcast this week. Um, and I think he's one of the most, 
I don't want to say misunderstood, but I think there's a there's a segment of the internet that seems to think he's like a top ten player based on some different data points. I, he's a kid that uh, I've compared to Robbie Grossman for a while. I think he's going to be a high on base corner guy. He can shift to center field and play an average center field if you need him to. Uh, and he'll ambush a ball here and there. You know, I think it might be plus raw power. But the thing with Ledbetter is some of the parts in his swing really are a detriment to his ability to make consistently hard contact. So this is going to come down to which team thinks that they can make a small tweak to his swing, get him hitting the ball with more ferocity more often. And I think that is actually a taller player development ask, like just the ability to manipulate the barrel, I I think is a more, more so intrinsic trait than it is teachable in a lot of ways. Uh, It's like you can either hit a golf ball or you can't, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It takes, it takes hand eye. Um, And so for Ledbetter, for me, like, I think, listen, the team that jumps off the page to me is is the Brewers at 18. I don't think he's going to go that high. I just don't. I think the conversation really starts because nobody from 19 through 25 is going to take him. I do think the Yankees at 26, considering their draft history, they've gone for models with Austin Wells and Trey Sweeney and Spencer Jones, all raw power left-handed hitters. I think maybe the Yankees could be interested at 26, but um, to your point, I tend to think Ledbetter begins to make sense at about 32, 33, 34. And uh, again, he's a guy that I think could could fall all the way to the to the 60 range, depending on who believes they can uh, get a hitter out of him. Yeah, 6'2", about 210, a left-handed bat. Uh, like, as you said, can play a little bit of center field. If you're interested in his numbers, uh, entering the, uh, the tournament, 320, 12 homers, 12 doubles, 47 walks, 36 strikeouts in 252 plate appearances. So, uh, and he does have 17 stolen bases too. So uh, are we talking about above average to plus speed here? Or are we just talking about average speed and really good instincts and just getting good reads off pitchers? Why the 17 I, stolen bases? Yeah, I think he's an instinctual guy. I've, mm-hmm. I've only watched a little bit of his base running film. It's not a great first step, but he does, uh, he, he is willing to move. I mean, he's been batting at the top of the Mississippi State lineup. They're a power over everything type of, of a team. So he likes to put the game in motion. Um, I, I don't know, man. I, I just struggle with this. Like you're talking about a 19 or 18 or 19% walk rate in the sec. Mm-hmm. I know sec pitching and pitching across the country is down a little bit, but um, if I remember looking back, he's, he's rocking like a 30 or a 31% swing rate. He's extremely passive. Mm-hmm. And like the, the passive approach has actually knocked like a guy like Brock Wilkin down boards a little bit. So that's something worth considering. I just, you know, I think this might ultimately end up being a guy that needs more development than people are assuming, even though he his chase rates and his, you know, his walk rates are so high. I think that can work to your detriment when you get to a place like high A and double A when guys are throwing a lot of strikes. So um, he's a tough one for me. I'm with you. Uh, I, I should say I'm with you kind of in the Yo-Yo Morales camp. I think he starts more so in the second round, but maybe there's a model team that falls in love with it. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a tricky one. And that's the thing these days, player development has changed over the last 10 or 20 years. And it seems to continue to change and evolve at a pretty rapid pace with, with data biomechanics and things like that, all kinds of uh, specialty training facilities 
Uh, it's a year round thing uh, as much as it's ever been more than it's ever been for these kids. So um, there we go. Colton Ledbetter. So 18 in Milwaukee, probably the absolute ceiling, but really the early thirties is where you think it's most likely, but he could even get to uh, get to the sixties unless a team falls in love with them. All right. Colton Ledbetter. Uh, here's another one. That's really interesting. Uh, Braden Taylor. Now I look at, I look at Taylor and I see an athletic third baseman. Can you squeeze him in at second? That's my first thought. Can you squeeze a guy over to second base? Because then I'm more confident that his bat plays. And you look at the numbers, freshman year, he hit 324 with 12 homers, uh, pretty even strikeout to walk ratio. Uh, then he hit 314 with uh, 55 walks and 40 strikeouts. Now he's back to even on the walks and strikeouts. Strikeouts probably a little high, but the power is up 19 homers. The slugging percentage is up 50 points, 60 points. And, but he's only hitting 297. Uh, and that's not necessarily a conference where you forgive, you know, relatively lower batting average. Like we didn't blink a whole lot on Ledbetter hitting 320 in the SEC, but 297 at TCU for Braden Taylor. What's the knock on Taylor? And, and what are the things teams generally like about him that have him pretty firmly, at least in the first round conversation? And where do you see him going as a high point and a low point? Yeah, so this is this kid's kind of the uh, antithesis of of Yo-Yo Morales. Uh, really low BABIP, um, and he hits the ball really hard. But you know, I think he's running like a two seventy BABIP in college baseball, which is extremely Ooh. low for a sport that no nobody can field the ball right. <laughs> in college baseball. So uh, I, I think he's due. He was probably due a better season than what he actually put forth. Uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head, man. Like this is a really athletic third baseman. He played shortstop for a lot of his uh, sophomore year last year. Uh, and I think the internal clock has just not quite taken to third base. He kind of, mm -hmm. he rushes things a little bit, but models are going to love him. He is barely 21 years old. So he's got that going for him. Um, a really, really young junior. I think the thing that teams are struggling with a little bit with Taylor is he, he struggled to hit a lot of pitches in the strike zone this year. Mm. And you kind of want to see guys that can handle spin, handle velocity in the strike zone, uh, especially for a guy like Taylor that doesn't chase. He would be, uh, it's 1A and 1B for Morales and Taylor. I think both of them offer something unique. Taylor's a lefty, Morales a righty. I think both of them offer a unique profile. They're the top two third basemen on my board. Mm. I think a model team like like the Orioles at 17, which is where I mocked him, um, makes some sense. But you know, depending on how much teams question the the bat to ball, mm -hmm. you know, I think maybe he has a chance to fall to like 36 or something. I point is, I think he's going to go higher than Morales as a floor because I think you kind of look at the swing decisions and you look at the floor of the player. I think he makes a little bit more sense as a left-handed hitter. I think he, he probably has the potential to go higher than Morales. Um, but I also think there's the chance that, you know, this kid's going to have a lot of strikeout issues just because the bat to ball isn't, uh, isn't as good as you'd like it to be. How much of the, uh, the value in Taylor do you think can be attributed to the athleticism and the chance that maybe you can get some second base out of him, or if third base doesn't take, you can throw him out into even center field. Well, he's not a very good runner is my, is my apprehension. Um, it's mostly average to fringe average. I think that could improve with, with conditioning, but like, I think Morales is just as good, if not a better athlete, mm -hmm. uh, rangier. 
and he's got a stronger arm. So I, I think Taylor could play second base. I don't think he is good enough for center. A lot of guys can can profile into left field. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when you stack this kid up against all the other college third basemen, he's got a better shot than most to stay at third base. I, I Jason, I genuinely think it's just a reps thing because he's twitchy. He's got bounce. Mm-hmm. He can move to his left and his right, and he's got a strong arm. Um, he just rushes things and his, he, he kind of loses his feet. Hey, I'm willing to wait on guys because Nolan Arenado, one of the greatest defensive third basemen of all time, like truly, and, and along with Matt Chapman, the elite third baseman uh, defensively in Major League Baseball the last seven or eight years, continues to be into his 30s, was a terrible defensive player in the minors. Terrible. And people are like, there's no way he's going to stick it there. That was the, you remember this, that was the, mm-hmm. the, the, the scene with, with Aaron Nott. It was like, good Lord, just throw him to first base or into right field already. I'm tired of watching this. And all of a sudden, you know, he flips the switch and becomes not just playable or average, but like literally premium and elite at that particular position. So uh, maybe that's Braden Taylor uh, down line. Braden so what Taylor, I'm hearing is you're comparing Braden Taylor to Eddie Matthews. I'm comparing Brayden Taylor to the creative player in MLB The Show. That's what I'm doing, where you can just move those dials wherever you want and make whatever player you want. You want him to be Wouldn't Babe Ruth? Be cool he can be Babe Ruth. was that easy? <laughs> so I, I see Brayden Taylor, and I see, I don't know how much of this Everyone's is Everyone's lab created. <laughs> I see the 6'1", 180. I don't know how accurate that is, but we could be talking about a guy who puts on 20 pounds as well and becomes like and starts to look more like uh, like a traditional third baseman, like not entirely, but more like a traditional third baseman. And I love the the left hand. Sounds hitter. like Kyle Seager. It really does. Yeah, Kyle Seager was what five eleven, six feet, one hundred ninety five pounds yeah. coming out, about two fifteen, two twenty when he retired. Kind of athlete. Absolutely, it was very good defensive third baseman. Big time pull power, which is probably where Taylor's going to be. You know, his power is going to be to the pull side. Uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting. Uh, one more, and then we'll move on to to call ups for a few minutes. Jacob Wilson, uh, tell us about Jacob Wilson. Who is he? Where does he play? Uh, how likely is he to uh, uh, to stick at shortstop? He's the uh, he's the Grand Canyon kid, which is a really interesting baseball program down there, isn't it? Yeah, man. I, I think this is a good opportunity for you and I just to have a philosophical, you know, conversation about how scouting works and how it should be approached. I think there's a lot of different ways to do it, right? Like analysts are going to approach scouting much differently than area scouts and scouting directors are going to approach it much differently than general managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jacob Wilson is kind of up there with Colton Ledbetter in terms of like the most polarizing kid in this class. I think if you talk to an analyst, someone that uh, puts a lot of weight in the data, they look at this as it's bottom of the scale exit velos. Uh, and there's a lot of chase chase rates. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's obviously elite bat to ball skills and some athleticism, but an area scout's going to look at this and go, okay, this kid is six foot three. Some say six foot four at this point, mm-hmm. 190 pounds, long limbs, baby face, playing shortstop bloodlines, so I think it's hard for those two camps to meet in the middle. I try as best I can to live in the middle when I'm evaluating players because I think it's the most, you know, it's the fairest way to critique these guys. Mm. So like on one hand, I think an area scout 
or even a cross checker, an old school cross checker is going to look at this kid and go, he belongs at five or six or seven. And I genuinely think there are analysts that will look at this kid and go, he's not going to impact the baseball. He's not going to impact the lineup. Probably best set for our second pick, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, 33, 34, 35 down to 40. So I think he probably for that reason ends up going a little bit lower than he's listed on most, on most boards. Like, I don't know where I have him right now. I think I have him like eight or nine, but for this exercise, we're talking ceiling and floor ceiling five, maybe six, you know, Brooks Lee wasn't terribly different. And, uh, than this, and, and the twins took him at five, uh, and then floor, I mean, I can't imagine a, a a guy like Jacob Wilson with the bloodlines that he's got and everything getting past, you know, the Guardians at 23 or the Braves at 24. The Cardinals are always a team that swoop up mm-hmm. uh, whatever falls into their lap. I mean, even Seattle, um, you know, I don't think he's the perfect fit for Seattle, but in terms of the control, the zone mantra and everything that they've got, if he's there at 22, you know, especially with the lack of shortstops in their system right now, uh, it's kind of hard for them to turn away from that. So, yeah. To answer your question, I'll say five to twenty-four. That would be my my guess. He reminds me a lot of your description. There reminds me a lot of early career Matt Carpenter. If that makes sense, like he turned yeah. into a guy who was going to slug more. But early career Matt Carpenter was, well, he might be able to hit three twenty with a four hundred on base, even though he only might hit ten home runs and twenty-five doubles. And that sounds a lot like like Jacob Wilson here. And if he can if, if he can play second base, he's playing shortstop now. If he's playing second base, that fits. That absolutely flies. You don't necessarily want that at third base, but we've seen teams win, Joe, with third basemen that didn't hit for power. Like if you have a shortstop, if Carlos Correa is your shortstop, for example, who's hitting you 25 home runs a year. And you have a third baseman like Wilson who's hitting you 12, but he's hitting 300 with a 380 OBP, you're fine. Like if, if third base is where he fits best, you know, it's going to come down to uh, to organizational fit. But when you're drafting, you're not thinking three, four, five years ahead in terms of how he fits into the puzzle. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, to be honest with you, I may and we had this conver- we've had this conversation before too. If you're drafting in the top ten in most drafts, like I want to take a bigger shot. I, I want to take a bigger shot than. Uh, I want to take more risk. I want more. I want to think about a player and go. This is a plus player for me. Like if things work out and I'm not dreaming, but if things go the way I think they can go legitimately think they can end up, this guy is a perennial, all, perennial all-star. Like I want to take that guy in the top 10, you get outside the top 10. I still want to do that. If that opportunity is there. And I don't know that Jacob Wilson brings that to the table. Now here's the thing, Joe, how many times have we seen a guy, you know, Robinson Cano comes to mind. Like you, you think about a guy, left-handed hitting guy who, uh, you know, pretty much has been a second baseman his whole life, played shortstop as an amateur, comes to uh, professional baseball, plays, you know, in the minor leagues for, uh, for, for a short period of time and doesn't it for power. Like there's not a lot of home run power there. And then early in his major league career, the power kind of, you know, it came and went. He was a 15 homer, 14 homer guy, like his first two, three years. And all of a sudden, boom. Ben Zobrist is another that comes to mind. Like there was no power there and it was contact. And all of a sudden, not only was Zobrist getting on base a ton, 
but the the power became more playable to to the era. And I know Ben Zorbis never became a forty home run guy or anything, but he was hitting, you know, five home runs a year in the minors. And then all of a sudden he works his way. He's twenty five when he gets to the big leagues, and then by the time he was twenty eight, he was hitting 27, 20 to twenty seven home runs a year. Is that Jacob Wilson? I don't know, but I, I also don't want to look at a guy like this and completely. Uh, completely discount the possibility that something like that takes place when 6'3", 190, 195, if you can play a little second base, uh, I mean, the bloodlines. I mean, in case you're unaware, Jack Wilson was a, was what, a 12-year big leaguer, was a tremendous defensive player. So you like the bloodlines, even if he's a different player than his dad, you like that it's there. And if I'm not mistaken, Joe, his dad coached on the Grand Canyon staff a little bit this year for the uh, for the first time. Yeah to yeah. uh, to kind of influence that uh, that organization down there. So, yeah, Jacob Wilson I look at it, I look at it like this and and maybe I'm digging my own hole. Um how do you define impact? Because I look at a guy like Nico Horner and this is the comp that I've had. Nico Horner is 6 foot 1, 200 pounds, drafted in 2018 as a pure 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 hitter. He went 24th overall to the Cubs and so I will you know, resign to the fact that he was not a top 10 or top 15 pick. Wilson has two or three inches on him. Mm. He's going to have five or 10 pounds on him. Nico Horner never played shortstop. He never stuck at shortstop. He was always destined for second base. Mm. Um, you know, Nico Horner this year, Nico Horner last year in 135 games, hit 10 home runs. He had an 11% strikeout rate. He was a four win player. I just, you know, that to me is impact. You're talking about a 281, 327, 410 guy who stayed up the middle of the field, mm -hmm. doesn't strike out, puts the ball in place, stole 20 bases. And where did Nico like, Horner that's, that's get drafted? What I see. And where did he get drafted? 24th, 24th, overall. 24th overall. That's appropriate. It's appropriate. But so now my question is you look at Jacob Wilson, who's mm -hmm. got a better body, mm -hmm. he's got bloodlines. Mm -hmm. I think he. I think most would agree. Some people don't, and that's okay. I think most would agree he's got a better shot to play shortstop than Nico Horner did. Although Nico, Nico Horner, Horner was, was great last year at shortstop. Just to sure, throw that out sure, there. Sure, but he's mostly. Yeah. I think most people think he fits best at second base. Sure, he's played it's, second base almost exclusively this year. Right, Dansby Swanson's so, in town. So yeah, yeah. But I. I don't know. For me, if you're buying Nico Horner. This version of Nico Horner at like pick 15, I'm all for it. So I guess this has been a roundabout way of saying, does Jacob Wilson fit in the top 10 of this draft? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, he could. But I, I think one I, of the differences I that I look at, one of the differences I look at in the hitters really quick, Joe, Nico Horner, obviously yeah. what, six feet, six one, not a guy that's going to create, no matter what you do with a swing, what you would call big time leverage. Now, while Jacob Wilson's not doing that now, he has the body and the the length and the arms to go ahead and create a swing like that if they want to do that with them to create easier, more natural loft and to get like what's Horner's career. I know it's early in his career. It's his fourth major league season or his fifth major league season or whatever. Um, and he hit 10 home runs last year. Is that the ceiling? I don't know. Maybe he can hit 15. I would say that Wilson's raw power is above Horner's just because he's bigger and stronger. You know, from from this yeah, standpoint, no, he's I, raw. He's twenty one years I old. I agree. You know, I agree. Yeah, I, I have him at. I have Jacob Wilson at nine right now mm -hmm. on my board. I'll be honest. 
having conversations with so many people over the last week, I'll probably move him down. Um, I can actually tell you behind the scenes, I have moved him down a little bit. I have him at 13 right now. Mm-hmm. I still think there are enough general managers in this league that look at the body. They seek floor. Uh, they seek a good person, someone with 80 grade makeup. Like I think there's l- enough teams that look for that in the draft that look at a guy like Jacob Wilson and they go, we know what we're going to get here. This is going to be a big league regular. He might not be in, you know, a slugger, but he's going to be a big league regular. Um, and we can so trust the bloodline. That, that's 10? where the bloodlines come, Joe. Like, like you can yeah. trust that he's going to work because he knows what that looks like. His dad's around to influence him. Those are big time positives for Wilson. And and in this better draft than 2018, it's a better draft. At least the top 40 or so is better than in 2018. If you're going 24 in this draft, that doesn't mean you're equal to going 24 in 2018. So I would put Wilson ahead of Horner. Oh no, certainly. certainly. Yeah. And if he goes, I mean, and I don't think it's necessarily out of place for him to go 9, 10, 11, 12. But me personally, I want more out of that. I want to take a bigger risk there um, because I'd like to get a four to six win player if I can. Sometimes it's yeah. not available. To your, point, you know? to your point, there is at least 15 players in this draft. Hell, there might be 12 or 13 on the college side alone mm-hmm. that have a higher ceiling. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't have to, you can look just up California look at Stanford like Tommy mm-hmm. Troy like that's that's a more impactful bat right nobody's going to argue with that and if if you think both are second basemen at the end of the day then I, I think it's you're probably it's leaning it's obvious there. you take Troy yeah so yeah, yeah I mean the, so long long story short like I think we both came to the conclusion like he probably fits 14 to 16 mm-hmm. um but he might go as high as you know six or eight yeah, we saw Tamar Johnson jump last year, which is odd for a for a prep kid to jump uh, as far as he ended up jumping last year. Pretty late in the process. Like there was talk of top five, and then it faded, and then all of a sudden, boom, here he is. Um, mm-hmm. So very similar idea there. You're not going to get 30 homers out of him. Uh, he's probably not playing shortstop, so he's probably playing second. Um, doesn't have the power to play third. So it's second base or left field is what we're looking at, but you really just like the hit tool and the, uh, uh, and the chance to, uh, to eliminate some risk and get into the big leagues. All right. Uh, the draft 45 days away, Joe, we'll check in again, uh, in the weeks ahead. We'll do some, we'll do some arms next week. Uh, when it comes to this, I think this is, this is starting to paint a picture for folks because it certainly is for me, uh, big league stuff before we go, we'll spend about 10 minutes on this. I've been staring at the Colorado Rockies for a while, Joe. And Chris Bryan is no longer the player that he used to be because he's not playing third base anymore. Doesn't want to play third base anymore. Thinks he'll stay healthy. Thinks he fits better in the outfield. So that's where he's playing. So right now what the Colorado Rockies are throwing out there at third base is Mike Moustakis, Ryan McMahon, and uh, Larius Montero. Uh, has 54 plate appearances as the uh, as the third baseman in Colorado. As a whole, they're getting nothing from that spot. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because they have a kid down in the minors in AAA in Albuquerque. Granted, it's the PCL. Granted, it's Albuquerque. By the name of Nolan Jones, 25 years old. In 39 games down there, he's, uh, he's running a 356, 481, 711 triple slash with 11 home runs a career best strikeout rate of just 23% and almost an 18% walk rate. This is a left-handed hitter, 6'4", 195, 
with a try at 60 to 70 raw power, depending on how you look at it. Uh, he's probably not a great defensive third baseman, but if I'm Colorado right now and I'm going nowhere fast and Nolan Jones is down there essentially wasting away in AAA, like what's he going to learn down there where all he has to do is lift the ball in the air and it's flying out in Albuquerque and against those pitching staffs down there. He's got a 183 WRC plus. I know we don't trust that at the minor league level, but just to give you an idea how much bigger uh, his performance has been, I mean, an 8% swinging, uh, swinging strike rate. Nolan Jones is doing everything, and he's 25 years old. He spent, this is his third season in AAA. He got to the big leagues for a very short period of time last year, 94 plate appearances with Cleveland. It really wasn't that bad, 244-309 with a couple of home runs. I think it's time for Colorado to go. Let's get Nolan Jones up here and see what he can do because we have to figure out our future and whether Nolan Jones is a part of it or not. Whether it's at third base or first base or a combination of doesn't really matter. Let's see if it can hit up here. And we're two months into the season. I think now is the time on Nolan Jones. Yeah, 25 years old. I I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm actually trying to remember how he ended up in Colorado because Nolan Jones for a while there was like a top 40 to top 60 prospect. Mm-hmm with the with the guardians like 2019 2019 2020 2021 um that was the one it was the one brito trade in november okay yeah well there you go so very yeah, interesting but, swap listen, of prospects there 23 percent strikeout rate career low if you take out low a ball mm-hmm. hitting for power again it's albuquerque but it's you know he's just hitting where they send him sure uh, not his fault but he's taking his walks he's hitting for power still, hitting for average. Uh, yeah, I mean, Colorado, listen, this guy is going to be controlled for another six years, uh, depending on when they call him up. Colorado has to make some moves with younger players. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any doubt that this guy's going to be a full-time player by the time the uh, trade deadline comes around. Mm. But I would call him up right now. I mean, you're not uh, you're not sacrificing any service time if that's the song and dance you want to play with any one player. Um, so for that reason, I'd, I'd get him up and see what he can do. Yeah, 40% hard hit rate. is soft hit rate's only 13%, which is pretty good. I think anything under 15 is more than acceptable uh, when you're in the upper minors. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's time for Nolan Jones. Um, I know you've been doing call. the same thing. You've been doing some thinking on a couple of guys as well, prospects that you think it's time to call them up or at least strongly consider moving them to the big leagues. Yeah, why the hell is Henry Davis still at double A? Yeah, and you I mean, think that, that's, and you think straight to the big leagues, straight to the big leagues. Yeah, straight to the big leagues. He's he's got 150 plate appearances at Double A. He's hitting 300, 457, 615. He's got as many strikeouts as he has walks. Mm-hmm. Under 18 percent strikeout rate. He's got 10 homers. I mean, I, I don't know. Listen, he's 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 23 years old. He's about to turn 24. He was the number one pick in the draft. Here's the thing with me though, man. Like the Pirates are winning. Yeah. They have a good team. They have a decent team right now. Mm-hmm. And I look at that roster and Austin Hedges has been terrible. Yeah. Again, Austin Hedges has been bad for They're quite actually a while. getting a lot out of he's Jason a, DeLay right now. Not a lot of yeah, power, not a, a lot of home runs. He's run power. not a good defensive. He's not a good defensive catcher. But when you look at what they're throwing out there, like they're at least getting something. And and I don't know. Like I'm not arguing against Davis going to the big leagues. He's hitting 300 with with big time power in double A and there's not a lot of ballpark issues down there. So he's got numbers similar to Nolan Jones. Similarly as impressive, maybe even more impressive than uh, than Nolan Jones and is basically 18 to 18 walk to strikeout rate. Yeah, this is a guy that's probably ready for that challenge. 
Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people see Andy Rodriguez as the like the better catching prospect overall. He's a 22-year-old. I think he turns – actually, he turns 23 tomorrow. He's really struggling at AAA, and I think in talking to some different folks, it, it's a good opportunity to move him down to to AA where he can get full-time uh, you know, experience. I just – I don't think Henry Davis has any purpose of seeing AAA. And if I'm the Pirates, you're winning – Hedges isn't providing you anything from everything that I've, I've known Henry since 2020, uh, 2020, 2021, when he was drafted, he's an 80 grade human being. He makes those around him better. Uh, Yeah. I I think you're kind of going to have a hard time finding plate appearances for delay um, when you bring him up because, you know, they've got Connor, Joe McCutcheon, Sawinski and, and Reynolds. And one of those guys has been occupying the DH spot. Um, and but you're still in it if you're Pittsburgh. Like every every well, they're, game, they're leading, you're better. They're like they're in second. They're in second in their yeah. division. I and think. only two back of Milwaukee right now in the American League, or excuse me, the National League Central as we record this, uh, entering the weekend's game. So yeah, this is a, this is a this is a hey, this is getting our young player up, but it's also we're trying to get better here. Like that's the point. It's not really just about the player. Well, you want to take care of the player. You don't want to rush him but this is going to help your team. Like that's what you think. You can always send them back down. I don't think it's as detrimental anymore, Joe, for guys to get called up and then have to get sent back down. I think it just happens too much. Uh, Davis is seeing that in the minors as it is guys go up, guys get sent down starts in camp. When guys are in big league camp, they get sent back down. Uh, I don't think that's this big detrimental uh, part of the process as, as maybe it used to be, or, or as maybe some believe it is. So if he really, really struggles and, and can't figure it out and needs to, then you just send him to triple a, like there's no reason to go back to double. Yeah. Just send him back to triple a work on some things, give him another shot. I mean, we've seen that around the league and guys start to figure it out. And, uh, and, and maybe that's where Henry and, is. and he's been in, they've been playing him in right field mm-hmm. every now and then at double a. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to get Swinsky off of the field, move Reynolds to center, uh, you can move, you know, keep McCutcheon at the DH, put uh, put Henry Davis in right field here and there. It's not a terribly difficult right field mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh to man. It just, it makes sense. It, the whole thing just kind of, like you're past the point of of controllability. It, there may be, maybe there's some Super 2 situations going on here, but uh, yeah, he needs to be up. He yeah. needs to be up. You have Other one more. You I have got one, one, more. one more here. Yeah, another catcher, man. I love catchers. Uh, Austin Wells. Mm-hmm. Let's get him up, New York. Let's get him up. This He's is a this awful. is a very similar situation. New York is a contender. Is. You're not getting so much out of your catchers at this point. The guy down in the minors is what's Wells? Twenty three, going to be twenty four in July, I think it is. Um, yep. And yep. he's raking in in Double A with with some pop, and he's making plenty of contact. Like this is a guy who. Like all the numbers, anyway, suggest that he's ready, and it's a left-handed bat, and and the Yankees love left-handed bats in their home ballpark. Jose Trevino is hurt. He's been ineffective when he's been up. I know that the pitchers really love him, and there is definitely something to be said about that. But mm-hmm. right now, you're rocking Kyle Higashioka, who's hitting 181 with a strikeout rate over like 35. percent Right. If yep. that's the only other, if that's your only option, and you have a left-handed hitting catcher who can take advantage of the short porch. Mm-hmm. Bring him up, man. And even before Trevino got hurt, Joe, they were throwing out a 63 WRC plus at catcher. If Wells can give you an 80 or better as a rookie, it's a massive improvement, at least until Trevino gets back and gets rolling. But you can just roll with Wells and Trevino. Yeah, I mean, my guess would be that right now New York is trying to get like 
a reasonably decent look at, at Ben Rorvet. I think he's finally healthy. I know he missed all of last year. He's part of that Donaldson trade. Yeah, he's, um, he's got four yeah. five plate appearances so far. Yeah. Yep. He's played three of the last four games. Um, I don't think he's the answer. And I'm not saying Austin Wells is going to be the defender that Jose Trevino is because he's not. But this guy immediately improves your lineup. The Yankees haven't been quite as good as I think people wanted them to be early on. And I think it's time that you you give this kid a shot. Maybe the holdup is Wells has uh, has only played 17 games at Double A. Started the year, probably uh, five games in A ball, uh, and moved up. Uh, he's in Double A now. Maybe they just want to get him another couple of weeks, um, and maybe that's it. So Austin Wells, Nolan Jones, and Henry Davis, some guys that have been around a little while, uh, especially Wells and uh, and Jones. Uh, and Davis yeah. was obviously the uh, the number one overall pick he's been the limelight for a while at least since his junior year in college joe uh fun talking baseball with you i'm glad we do this every week i hope people are enjoying it i think people are enjoying it getting good feedback um but uh, we'll jump into like as we go this is going to become more draft centric because that's the thing but uh i'm going to get out on the road again here in the next couple of weeks and uh and see more players so hope to uh run some stuff by you as uh, as i see it by the way joe and i live in the same region and and Joe, we've been to some games together. We saw a couple of draft prospects. We uh, we were at uh, at UW last month. We don't go to enough games together, and it's kind of a shame. So that's a fact. And I'm blaming you, as you should, <laughs> in front of everybody. But we need to fix that. So so let's do that. You got it, man. Well, I'd like that. Appreciate it. Uh, that's all for us this week. This is the FSS Plus podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, anywhere you find your podcasts. And I always post it at futurestarseries.com. By the way, find Joe's podcast, Overslot. It's a draft podcast for the most part, but not necessarily exclusively. All kinds of really fun uh, uh, conversations uh, over there at the Overslot podcast hosted by Joe Doyle. Uh, That's weekly stuff, right, Joe? Weekly, yeah. And we might even be moving to bi-weekly here with the draft coming up. Right. Awesome. Beautiful. Twice weekly? Bi-weekly? Bi-weekly, twice-weekly. If twice you met weekly. twice week, twice weekly, twice. people people understand now. Twice a week. There you go. Yeah, more than one a week. <laughs> I don't like okay, to commit, Joe. More than one a week. <laughs> I like to commit to another. <laughs> Boom. Follow right. me. I'm a good writer in a good order. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. By the way, follow Joe on on Twitter at Joe Doyle M I L B. I'm at Prospect Insider. Follow FSS Plus at FSS underscore Plus. We'll talk next week. So just chill to the next episode.